0: Chinook Seedery is committed to quality, not mass producing seeds as cheaply as possible. Their small batch roasting process leads to a noticeably better seeding experience and there are seeds come in delicious, one of a kind flavors. There's nothing more American than baseball and spitting seeds. Whether you're headed to the ballpark or watching the playoffs from home, don't do baseball without a bag of Chinook Seeds nearby. Head to ChinookSeedery.com and use the code MLB to get 20% off a bag of the best seeds ever. I don't want to see you go. I need somebody to love me. This is the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. As always, we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network, which is itself a part of the Ringer.com, home to numerous stories about Game 5 of the World Series, as well as stories about Games 3 and 4 over the weekend. Uh, We've got Zach Cram on where this Red Sox team ranks among the greatest teams in baseball history. I wrote about where the Dodgers go from here after losing back-to-back World Series, and Ben wrote about David Price's life. Legacy, and there will be more stories to come throughout the week as we transition into off-season mode. We are going to pick this World Series carcass until there is no meat left on the bones. So keep your eyes peeled for more baseball coverage throughout the week. But now, without further delay, let's bring on Zach Cram and Ben Lindberg to do our World Series post-mortem. All right, we have a champion, a World Series champion, the Boston Red Sox. God save us all. And to discuss... Uh, The last three games of the World Series are two friends of mine. A man whose profanity shocks and frightens Raphael Devers. That's Ben Lindbergh. Is it? Hello. (laughs) And a man who is still at game three, Zach Cram. We're entering the
1: top of the 23rd.
0: (laughs) Uh, You know, I think if we're going to talk about the World Series, there's only one place to start. And that's with Gamecock legend Steve Pierce. The World Series MVP all right I'm not going to play this entire song again. Um, so before the series, I predicted that Steve Pierce would win the MVP, and Ben laughed at me uh, and <laughs> I'm so <still> here, <laughs> here to to punish you for for your disbelief, I asked Bobby Wagner to to pull that clip so let's let's just all basket my own my own great foresight. MVP picks I. I think Mookie Betts is going to be the pivotal player in the series. I think if he shows up, uh, the Red Sox are going to win this. If, if he puts up like, I don't know, the kind of performance we saw from Alex Bregman in the division series, then the Red Sox are going to win this easily. If he no shows, then this is wide open and he becomes even more pivotal. If he uh, starts at second base in the the middle three games of the series. Uh, So, while I think he's going to be the linchpin, I'm going to make it a clean sweep of Gamecock MVPs and pick Steve Pierce to be your <laughs> World Series MVP. <laughs> okay. You know, before we move on to the substance of the the last three games, I, I think you guys should just spend a, mi- a minute talking about how right I was.
2: You are totally entitled to that victory lap. I give you full credit. I I would not have predicted that. I did not predict that, obviously. And I think Steven Pierce was not only the MVP, he was the worthy and most deserving candidate for MVP. It wasn't a series where anyone had like a totally legendary series. I mean, Steve Pierce's series is legendary to his Red Sox fan family and to Red Sox fans everywhere, I'm sure. But it's not like one of the all-time performances in a playoff series that we will remember forever. But he was totally deserving. He kind of concentrated it in the last couple games there, but he made it count.
1: I was reminded that uh, in the 2016-2017 offseason, so two years ago, I wrote a piece on the 10 best bargains of the offseason. And Steve Pierce was my number one bargain. So I called it even (laughs) before you, Michael. Um, But that was also when Steve Pierce was with the Blue Jays and other members I put on this list as I'm looking now included Danny Espinoza to the Angels and Koji Uehara to the Cubs. Neither of which (laughs) really panned out like Steve Pierce did. But I do think that if there was a, a surprise here, and obviously all of it was a surprise, it's that Pierce did a lot of damage against right-handed hitting, right-handed pitching too. He has been a lefty masher for a while now, and his home run against Kershaw in Game 5 was evidence of that, but homering against Kenley Jansen in Game 4 was kind of where you don't expect him to even receive an at-bat in that scenario, and he succeeded, and basically that changed the series from a, Potential two-two tie to where the Red Sox basically had an insurmountable advantage.
0: I appreciate Ben say, you know, Ben talking about how you weren't wrong by that much, and Zach saying that you were right even before I was. So that that's, uh, it, you know, that's really gracious of you guys to do that. <laughs> um, shout out to David Price, who I actually thought was gonna win the MVP up until the moment they announced Pierce, because, uh, I mean, th- what a great narrative swing for, for David Price. This obviously, I mean, every World Series means a lot to everybody, but this seemed like it really meant a lot to him. Um,
2: Where did that moment rank in most suspenseful moments for you during this series, finding out whether Steve Pierce would actually get the award?
0: Probably... If if we're gonna take Nathan Eovaldi's entire outing in in game four one moment, then mm-hmm. that moment was probably the second most suspenseful thing that happened in this World Series. Because okay. you know, this was we talked about how the the Red Sox beating the Astros in five wasn't really a gentleman sweep. It didn't feel like that much of a blowout. This felt like a gentleman's sweep where the Dodgers were only in this briefly. Um so let's start it at the one with the one game the Dodgers did win, the one game that Zach has spent Uh, his entire 20s at and that's game three the longest you know we were at game two the World Series last year I was at game five and both of those felt like they took forever and I little did I know so Zach why don't you just set the scene and, and tell us what that was like to to be there in person
1: yeah so the story or at least I thought the story of game three was Walker Bueller who threw seven shutout innings he was electric the crowd was really into it and it seems like it was years ago now, but the Dodgers had a lead. They were up 1-0 after a Jock Peterson home run, and then Kenley Jansen came in for a six-out save. He hadn't pitched yet in the series, so he was supposedly fresh. And then another Bauman, South Carolina favorite, Jackie Bradley Jr., hit another two-out home run to tie it, and from there it sort of devolved into lunacy. You had multiple runs scoring on infield singles and errors, you had Nathan Eovaldi, who I'm sure we'll talk about more, turning in a really heroic performance where every single inning that he came back out, I was slacking in shock. Like, Nathan Iavaldi's back out there. There's nobody in the bullpen. Nathan Iavaldi's back out there again. He's up to 70 pitches now, 80 pitches now. And it seemed like, particularly after the Dodgers tied the score, after Ian Kinsler made another goof, and the Dodgers tied it in the bottom of the 13th, it really seemed like we could be in for something historic. And then, obviously, we were. It didn't necessarily matter in the end, but it certainly fits with the notion that when a team blows a late lead, it creates World Series magic.
0: Was that a classic game, or did it feel more like the, the National League wildcard game where it was just two fighters who were sort of out on their feet for a while?
2: Yeah, I've been going back and forth on that. I mean, one of the criteria for classic is memorable, right? And we'll never forget this game. I think when we think of this series in the future, we will think of game three and the endless seven hour and 20 minute game. I don't know if that makes it classic because for large swaths of it, it was pretty uneventful. And if part of the test of whether a game is classic is whether you would ever want to subject yourself to it again, (laughs) (laughs) whether it will ever show up on like ESPN Classic or something, don't think so. Don't think anyone is ever going to voluntarily rewatch this game. So it's a classic in that, like, if you were there or you were watching, there's almost like a solidarity. It's like, yes, I conquered game 3 of the 2018 World Series, but as far as like the actual fun from moment to moment, I mean, when it got really wacky, it it was fun, but at, at a certain hour of the morning you get punch drunk enough that I think you just realize what's happening, but the actual baseball was not that great. I think the fact that the series ended in 5 kind of
1: removes some of its luster because if the Dodgers had ended up winning the series or even pushed it to say seven games, it really would have been one of those moments that we revisit. But you know, kind of like the the game five in the two thousand four a l c s which went many, many innings and had the Red Sox coming back, et cetera, that became more important once the Red Sox ended up winning the series. this one being the only Dodgers win, kind of makes it more of a footnote than anything that stands out atop the page.
0: Yeah, and as far as whether you want to go back and revisit it, it's sort of like there are are episodes of Mad Men that were great television, but were just sort of not tough to get through, but just very emotionally dense and rich. You know, everybody's got TV shows or movies like that where there are episodes you love, but you don't want to necessarily go back and rewatch all the time. And that's sort of what this this felt like to me. You know, watching Evaldi come out and pitch like that, and then eventually take the loss, like that was the most emotional I felt throughout the entire series. Like the, the most moving thing that I saw, maybe throughout the entire playoffs. And it might have just been because it was three thirty in the morning, and I barely knew my own name at that point. Um, but you know, that that was the the peak. I don't know if it, I don't know if it was like a classic fun game, even. You know, watching it from home, I can't imagine what a pain that must have been to be at the ballpark and delete how many how many columns did you delete? <laughs> uh,
1: I deleted two um but honestly, in person, it was a blast. I wonder if it had been a weekday, if it might have been different, but the fact that it was a Friday night meant there were at least fifty thousand fans still in the park when the game ended, so the f- crowd was really into it they started reopening the concession stands in the late innings. They uh, announced a 14th inning stretch and the crowd sang it, uh, take me out to the Ball Game" with gusto. They were really into it and made it an enjoyable atmosphere and circumstances. So I think from that perspective, it actually is more memorable than maybe it might've seemed watching on TV. There is something to that, that like
0: everybody ought to go get t-shirts made that say I survived game three of the 2018 world series. I, mm-hmm. One of my favorite fan experiences at the ballpark was I was at a 19 a inning Phillies reds game in 2011. And I remember every single twist and turn of that game. Um, in a way that, I, you know, I don't know that there's just the absurdity of, of something like that. Uh, and that was, in a, you know, that was, I think, in May. So I can't imagine what that would have been like in, in the World Series. I just imagine working a game like that has to be a little stressful.
2: Yeah, there should be one of these every postseason, I think. (laughs) I I would be disappointed if at some point there weren't just a a test of endurance that then has implications for the following game, which in this case it did. It set up a lot of the managerial shenanigans and decisions that people are still talking about from Game 4. But I'm kind of glad that Game 3 happened because without that, I think this series would just quickly slip away from my memory. Because you're right, it, it just... It doesn't measure up. I mean, we've had a lot of really classic seven-game amazing series in the past several years, and they can't all be like that. They were special because we don't see those every year, and I don't think this postseason stands out for anything, I guess, except bullpenning, potentially. Maybe that's what we'll remember it for, and just for how the Red Sox sort of steamrolled everyone. But in terms of the quality of the games in the playoffs as a whole or the World Series, eh, wasn't the worst, but certainly wasn't the best. To that point, Ben,
1: I think there was some discussion after Game 3 about if baseball needs to change anything to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. I think the three of us might not be uh, the right audience for that kind of change, but I do think if we're talking about baseball games lasting too long, particularly in October, it's not the one six- or seven-hour game that they should be concerned Mm -hmm. about. It's the fact that Every game is lasting four hours. I I don't mind something that lasts that long because you're right. It does take otherwise forgettable series and at least, you know, create one meaningful, memorable moment. It's the fact that, you know, the average four to two game is taking three hours and 57 minutes. That is the real issue here if there is one. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I agree. These are really lasting memories when one of these really just wild, wacky games gets out of control, and I would be sorry to lose them. You know, I've been to minor league games with the runners starting on second and extra innings, and it ended quickly. And I see the merits of it at that level, where you're mostly worried about development. But I would be sad to lose the occasional epic game where things just get sort of silly. But I agree, on the whole, it is the average game creeping toward four hours that is more of the problem than the the outlier.
0: And from a standpoint of, of growing the game, it's these, these games like game three this year, games two and five last year, game seven the year before that, where if it's close and late and it just keeps going and going and going, that's where you start pulling in fans who, wait, aren't that interested in baseball, saying, wait, this game's still going on. And then within two innings, they're doing exactly what Zach was doing. It, say, oh my God, is, is Eovaldi going to mm-hmm. come out and pitch a fifth inning, a sixth inning? And, you know, that's just the tension of, of playoff baseball, I think is the best thing about the sport. And just from a, how know, from a, a philosophical standpoint, this is like baseball is, it's about attrition. It's about endurance in a way that over the course of months, in a way that not many other sports are. And so to have that sort of boiled down into one game and figuring out how to use your roster. And, you know, Ben, you talked about uh setting up the future games. If if you're uh if you're a manager and you're playing a best of seven series and you have you have to pick one spot to to have an 18-inning game, game three is the absolute worst place for it to happen because you've got two more Uh, Games two more consequential games before the next off day. And then you have to figure out what to do with your bullpen. Mm -hmm. So I think Zach's exactly right that it's not about, it's not about length. It's never been about length. It's about the pace, I think. And, you know, this is not what we mean by pace of play because pace of play has turned into into managing game length. But that's really, in so many words, the way you have to put it is how, you know, how much does it feel like it's moving along? And I think even the longer games in in this world series, World Series, you know, those, you know, game five, um, uh game game four to a certain extent, they even though they were taking a long time, they felt like they were moving along. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's it's rough that that these games that pretty much every playoff game lasts until midnight on the East Coast, but you know, I don't mind having a game like this.
2: Yeah. I, I do want to try to preserve some of the weirdness of baseball yeah. and some of the refusal to conform because There are ways in which, I mean, you know, every manager, every front office, they're all starting to resemble each other more and more. But there are still things about baseball that are unique to baseball. Just the fact that the playing surfaces are different and the stadiums are different, the dimensions are different. And I think a lot of people hear that and they think, what, you can just kind of do whatever you want with your field within reason. That's weird. And it's the same thing with an extra inning game that theoretically can go on forever. I mean, what other form of entertainment works that way where you just kind of have a vague idea of how long the thing will take and it might take twice that long or three times that long in certain cases. It's a weird business model, I guess, because generally you want to tell people, well, Show up here at this time and it'll be over by then and you can make plans for afterwards. So it's kind of like an anachronistic sort of thing that I don't know if it fits in the modern world. It it contributes to this perception. I think that baseball is weird and old fashioned, but... Also that weirdness. I don't necessarily
0: think that's a bad
2: thing, yeah. I, I it's distinctive, an and you want to be yeah. distinctive, like there are a million forms of compelling entertainment out there, so you want to stand out. I don't know if, hey, sometimes our games last seven hours is the best sell, but I think there is a, a certain type of person who is attracted to that unpredictability,
0: and there's an extent to which the atmosphere that Zach described, like it is at a certain point, it just turns into a party that doesn't end. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so if everybody's just there and hanging out, weird stuff happens. And it's distinct from, you know, you we see these marathon playoff games in hockey too, but hockey one is just because it's sudden death, there is a dangerous level of anxiety just for every overtime period at a time. And there's no commercial breaks usually within playoff overtime in the NHL. So it's just, it's so tense it's almost not fun. And because it's sudden death, you don't get the back and forth. It's like it, the the swing um in I forget if it was the thirteenth or fourteenth inning it was very late in in the thirteenth inning where the Red sox went up in the top half of the inning they could have broken it open and they didn't and then Ian Kinsler bless his heart threw away the last out of the game yeah. that can't ha- that can't happen in any other sports so keep baseball weird mm-hmm. um as hackneyed as that expression has become uh but we were discussing the impact of this it you know game three would have might have gone down as an all-time classic if it had been a turning point. Like, we talked on last week's podcast about how whatever else happened, the Dodgers had to win game three, and it's set up pretty well for them to win game four going into it, and then they pick up a four-run lead, and that's going to go down as an all-time missed opportunity, I think.
1: In terms of classic moments, I think one we were deprived of because of how that game and series ended is Yasiel Puig's home run. If the Dodgers Mm -hmm. end up, even losing the series, but if they win game four and tie the series two to two, set up a, another Kershaw game five with the series tied, that would have been talked about so much both now and in the future but because of how it was set up. He, on a 2-1 pitch, took an inside pitch and sort of did the thing where he backed off the plate. But then instead of setting up, he... Wiggled his butt. I I said this in Slack and I was made fun of for how I phrased it, but that's essentially what he did. And then on the very next pitch, hit a ball 439 feet. He immediately raised his arms in the air. Eduardo Rodriguez immediately fired his glove down at the mound. And I think the camera work was pristine here because you got both moments. One of the best
0: shots in baseball, in recent baseball. It it was
1: like the old thrill of victory, agony of defeat in one single gif. And... That was just forgotten two innings later when the Red Sox stormed for nine runs in the span of six or seven outs. Uh, But that was such a cool moment. The stadium, of course, erupted, and then that's lost to history.
0: Ben, is there anything that Dave Roberts could have done different? Because he's been taking a beating. He's probably going to continue to take a beating for the entire offseason for the way he managed the bullpen. Um, Ryan Madsen inherited seven runners this World Series, and every single one of them scored. Mm Mm-hmm how much responsibility for this rests on Dave Roberts' shoulder? I'm not necessarily saying that it does. I'm just, you know, how how much of this could have been avoided?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there are things you can quibble with. <laughs> there are many people who are doing more than quibble, but I wouldn't do more than quibble. I don't think, I, I think it was completely defensible to take Rich Hill out when he did. And I know that there was this whole kind of comic interaction, not comic to Dodgers fans, I guess, but to impartial people because it seemed like neither Roberts nor Hill actually wanted Hill out of that game at that point. But there was this kind of comedy of errors, weird etiquette thing that that kicked in and suddenly Hill was out of the game. But I think that was okay because third time through the order, we know that a pitcher who's cruising is not necessarily more likely to keep cruising Hill is not a guy who typically goes very deep into into games and he was already kind of at the point where he tends to get removed. So I had no problem with making that move to Alexander, who is really tough on lefties. He's a good ground ball guy. I think where you could maybe find some fault is then removing Alexander after, what, one batter he walked one the, battered, the yeah, first guy he faced, right? And then he did matchup stuff for Christian Vasquez, who— you know, he has had some big hits this postseason. Every I, Red Sox hitter has. I owe
0: Christian Vasquez an apology, by yeah. the way. I <laughs> I, guess I we was all do. really I've been doing nothing but nagging him all World Series, and he has been nails. And mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I was wrong.
2: Yeah, I've I've always liked his defense, but I, I have denigrated his bat, and I apologize. But I just don't think you can really fault Roberts for Going to the bullpen at that point. And then as for Madsen, you know, I know that he had allowed the seven out of seven inherited runners to score, but that doesn't mean that he actually does allow all his inherited runners to score. And he, he didn't in the NLCS, it worked just fine bringing him in. And, you know, you can't base too much of your decision-making on what happened in the immediately previous one or two games. And so, I think that ultimately, could he have handled that slightly better? Yeah, maybe. But at some point, it comes down to guys have to get outs, and no one was getting outs for him. And you can go to the best guy in the bullpen, the worst guy in the bullpen. You're still going to have a better expected outcome than the one the Dodgers actually had there. I mean, when you get the ball to Kenley Jansen in a save situation for the second time in the series and he blows it, I just, I don't know how much you can hang at, the manager's door for that, and and for people saying that you should have let Hill in because he was cruising, all you have to do is look at the Red Sox and look at Eduardo Rodriguez, half an inning early, <laughs> same exact thing. And and I think Cora has even acknowledged that the Red Sox probably let him off the hook there by scoring subsequently. So no one knows or cares about that decision. But I think he clearly stuck with Rodriguez too long, and that led to the Turner hit, and then to the Puig homer. And I mean that's exactly the sort of mistake that Roberts was trying not to make there. So, so much of the series, I think, comes down to players not performing. And ultimately, I mean, the bullpen didn't show up at the right moments while the Red Sox bullpen was nails all the way through. And Red Sox or Dodgers hitters had a 550 OPS on the series and they didn't concentrate all their hits with two outs and runners in scoring position the way the Red Sox did.
0: I think you can give Roberts a little bit of stick for maybe not anticipating the left hand the back to back left-handed pitch hit, pinch hitters there. Yeah. Um and and if you're gonna go to a righty, maybe Dylan Flora might be the guy that that I would bring in. Cause you know, Madsen's not really a, a ground ball guy with guys on base, that's sort of what you want. But you, you know, exactly like you said, the Madsen move worked out literally as poorly as it could have. <laughs> and they still gave Kenley Jansen a lead in the ninth against Steve Pierce, who's not supposed to hit righties that well. Mm-hmm. So it it just comes back to to what we were talking about last week that within within reason a suboptimal plan executed well will probably still win. You'd expect mm-hmm. any bullpen to how many outs did they need to get seven? I think just to to close out that game. You know you would expect any bullpen in baseball to get seven outs before allowing four runs, and you know it just didn't happen. So that gives the ball to David Price with a chance to. Uh, to close out the World Series against Clayton Kershaw. Let's, before we take a break, talk about. I mean, these are two Cy Young winners. Um, Kershaw is definitely going to the Hall of Fame. Price has a decent shot. But, you know, these are great, great, great pitchers who've been a little snake bit in the playoffs. And so let's just briefly, I know you guys probably aren't that interested in like playoff legacy as I'm making air quotes, but this is something that this is an important baseball story. You know, Price's redemption versus Kershaw still being lost in the wilderness to an extent.
1: Well, Kershaw in Game 5 kind of experienced the microcosm of his entire playoff career. It's never been the strikeouts and walks that are the problem. He's basically produced the same numbers as he has in the regular season. And in Game 5, he struck out five, didn't walk a batter, but it was the home runs that got him. He allowed three home runs, including one to Pierce in the first inning that gave Boston a lead they would never... Give up, And that's been the problem for Kershaw his entire postseason. He's now allowed the second most playoff home runs of anyone in Major League history. Number one's Andy Pettit, but he's pitched the most innings in playoff history. So Kershaw's kind of by himself up there. And it's also fitting the Kershaw narrative because he lost an important game. And I don't think he's going to opt out of his contract, but it's possible. And if that ends up being the last playoff game of his Dodgers career... Losing the World Series at home is a pretty unfortunate way to go, but also, again, something that fits the narrative we've had for a while.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not his most horrendous playoff appearance. It's not embarrassing to go seven innings and give up four runs, and a couple of the homers you allow are two, two of the very best hitters in baseball. Sorry to snub you again there, Steve Pierce. Maybe I should just say three of the best hitters in baseball, but I I don't know. At this point, it just feels different to me because Kershaw is clearly so different from what he was when he was his peak dominant self, and was still occasionally struggling as well as being let down by his team. Now it it just almost I don't know. It feels like punching down or something to to pile on him because he's clearly not the same pitcher, and I'm I'm hoping that. He will figure out this transition that he's making. And he was pretty successful during the regular season with diminished velocity. But there's clearly just not as much room for error here. And there are days when he just doesn't have it and he's not going to blow the ball by anyone. So if he doesn't have the speed differential, if he doesn't have perfect command and great movement, it's just not going to go well against the best offenses in baseball. So I don't know. It's going to be a, a... Curious kind of contract decision here. I don't think that he will opt out, but maybe he'll try to exert some leverage and get some sort of extension here. And if you're the Dodgers, you have to be a little bit wary of committing to Kershaw long term, given the recent trajectory. But he's just so synonymous with the franchise and so important to the team that it's really hard to let him walk away or even get close to that point.
0: What Kershaw, playoff Kershaw feels like right now is the bit in, I think it was Take Hunter 3, where uh, you just have to keep repeating the take over and over, and eventually what you're predicting will happen once, and eventually you'll be right, and that's all you need. And that's sort of what happened, like, the playoff Kershaw thing was bullshit for years and years and years, and now that he's getting older, and the stuff's diminished, you know, now there's probably something to it. And, you know, I I agree, it it just feels uncharitable you know punching down to the best pitcher of the, of his generation might be a little uh, uh farther than i'd go i d- do find it instructive that um uh espn tweeted out a graphic of the the pitchers with the worst ERAs in elimination games minimum four starts and the problem with that with narrowing down the the scope of your fun fact like that is that you're only going to like only very very good pitchers <laughs> pitching for elimination games or right. start for elimination games so the the worst dras i were in some order, Kershaw, Pedro Martinez, Max Scherzer, Brett Saberhagen, and Roger Clements. Yeah. And like <laughs> wow, that's a that's a list of really good pitchers. So you know, there's there's only so far that I think this this narrative diminishes him. And yeah. I just this it feels like it can't go on forever. Like he's gotta he's gotta win a ring at some point. And like, and if he does opt out and if he does move to a different team, like I would almost drive to Vegas right now and, and go put money on that team to win the world series, just because it feels like it would be so, um, you know, so tidy from a, from a story perspective for, for, you know, Kershaw to, to leave his, his playoff, uh, um, playoff hoodoo behind him if he leaves the Dodgers. But yeah, you know, I mm-hmm. just, you know, this is just going to go, keep going on and on.
2: Yeah. I do wonder how we will think of this if we think of this in 20 or 30 years when we think back on Clayton Kershaw. Is it the first thing that comes to mind or is it like the 10th thing that comes to mind? I I don't know, because when I think of some of the pitchers you named and, and were in that fun fact, allegedly fun fact, I, I mean, some of them have won rings and one World Series, so it's maybe that kind of gets them off the hook. but. You know, I don't even know what most of their playoff numbers are off the top of my head. There are guys who are known for being great playoff pitchers. You know, your Smoltes and Shillings, and wrongly probably Jack Morris because he had that one incredible game. But other than that, there's just a great mass of players who are just kind of who they usually are for the most part or don't stand out in either way. And then there are the GOATs. The guys who are just notorious for usually like one terrible moment when they, you know, let the ball go through their legs or whatever, not referring to anyone specific with that example. And I don't know, will Kershaw be in that category? Will we think of him just because he has this large body of playoff work where he hasn't been terrible, he's just been bad by his incredible standards, and thus far he hasn't broken through and won that World Series. So, I mean, I still think of him as the best pitcher of the generation, and nothing he really could do in the playoffs can change my perception of that. So I I just – I don't know. It's not like something that keeps him out of the Hall of Fame. I mean, to what extent can it really damage his luster?
0: Well, it's – I'm only so worried about this because this is not a a tab that people whose insights on baseball I tend to value – Really end up pulling at a lot, like how much you think this matters. I think is reflective of of how well you understand the entire body of work. Um, But right now he's somewhere between a Rod, where it was just like you said that he was so great in the regular season that just being okay in the playoffs looks like choking. Mm-hmm. And somewhere between that and Roger Clemens, where he actually did pitch badly, and it was there was this bizarre disconnect that uh, get Bill Simmons started on this. He'll still do mm-hmm. twenty minutes on Roger Clemens in the playoffs at the drop of a hat right now, and that th- both of those things only went away when they won a ring. And mm-hmm. you know, Barry Bonds had a similar thing, and yep. that only went away when
2: yeah. yeah,
0: when he shredded the playoffs in two thousand two, even though the Giants didn't win at all. So maybe the the solution for Kershaw is to just stick around until he's 40 and do ungodly amounts of
1: HGH and then everything will figure itself out. I think uh, his counterpart in game five is also instructive. David Price had worse numbers than Kershaw in the playoffs and maybe the solution is start on short rest because David Price did that twice in these playoffs and was magnificent both times winning the decisive games against both the Astros and Dodgers. But his playoff narrative is, is completely gone. So it's one of those things where it's like you're only, you're always so bad until you're not and it's not necessarily so easy to predict when that switch will flip because I don't think anyone who watched Price fail to get out of the second inning in his start against the Yankees would have predicted this to be the postseason where he overcomes these obstacles but that's gone forever and like you, Michael, I thought he might win the World Series MVP after all this.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Price has pitched more than 320 games in his career and he had this reputation that was just cemented and it took three or four games to completely erase it. I mean, you know, I guess it could conceivably come back at some point in the future, but for right now, he has proven that he can make big World Series starts and there's just no taking that away from him. And I don't know, maybe it's just that, I mean, Kershaw has made... Big World Series starts. He's made big playoff starts. He just hasn't concentrated them, I guess, in a way that would really get this stain removed from him. Because, you know, all time, Price still has a worse playoff ERA than Clayton Kershaw does. But at this point, it's like the weight has been lifted because he strung together three or four good games in a row. And It can change so quickly because, as you said, I mean, just over three weeks ago, he was getting booed off the mound, and now he's a hero. So conceivably, that could happen with Kershaw any one of these years. It's just that it gets less and less likely as his skills diminish, and he just becomes less likely to string together three dominant starts.
0: And what's frustrating about this, and we'll come back to Price in a second because there are a couple interesting things about his story, particularly the short rest thing, but What's frustrating about this is how little, like, Kershaw has pitched badly at points, but his problems in the World Series are so Kenley Jansen's problems in the World Series. <laughs> like, if Jansen doesn't blow saves in Game 2 of last year's World Series and Game 4 of this year's World Series, if he doesn't take the loss in Game 5 last year, then Kershaw's probably got a ring, and we're not talking about this anymore. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's just everything that involves tying in a a player's performance to, or a player's reputation to his team's performance is just so riddled with things that blaming players for things that they can't control, and that that always bothers me. Particularly in baseball, where an individual player has so little control over the over the broader outcome. Um, but back to back to price, like I wonder if there's something to just breaking up the routine. Um, that, you know, I wonder if, if this was in his head a little bit because we saw, we've seen him do just so many weird things in the playoffs back to, to warming up in, uh, the 2015, it was game four the 2015, uh, ALDS when he was with Toronto and coming into a game that the Blue Jays had pretty well in hand, um, when he was, when he was slated to start game five and just stuff like that. And, you know, it. Oral Herschheiser uh, said something years and years ago about how if he was a little bit tired, he was he thought he pitched better because he wasn't overthrowing his sinker. Um and I wonder if there's something to just breaking up the routine or, or being a, you know, just not being so amped up to uh to start on on full rest in the playoffs that maybe helped Price focus and or maybe it was just he got the bounces this time and the, and everything else is is post hoc reasoning but you could you could tell his inability to win a start and then inability to win a ring was was uh starting to wear on him a little bit like he he showed that a little more in his face than Kershaw ever has
2: and so much of that was lack of run support too during his 10 starts when he was winless and i think was 0 and 9 his team scored 21 runs in those 10 games, which, you know, you'd still think he might pick up a win or the team might win one of those games. But it's hard to win consistently when your team's scoring just over two runs per game. So we even saw that in his start against what the the Yankees this year was it the Astros. The one where he was not very good, but he left with a lead. It was like 5-4, and he was getting applauded coming off the mound, not because he had pitched so well, just because his team had scored, and he was leaving the team in a good position. So, so much of it is dependent on that context.
0: All right. Well, we're going to take a break here. We're going to look forward a little bit. We're going to do a little bit of wrap-up stuff and then uh, close the door on this postseason. So, we'll be right back after these messages. G Suite is a suite of cloud-based productivity tools that includes Gmail, Docs, slides, sheets, and Drive. These tools improve your work life, both in terms of your experience and the outputs you create. Hence their new campaign, Make It With G Suite. You know when you have 20 identical versions of a document labeled final and no clue which is the latest, so you make another version and name that one final final, right? Well, with G Suite by Google Cloud, a range of work apps like Gmail, Docs, and Slides lets you make real-time updates to the same document without having to keep track of version after version of a single project. And since all the tools are cloud-based, your whole team can access the same document and work on the same page at the same time. To find out more about G Suite's productivity tools, visit gsuite.com. That's gsuite.com. That's Make it with G Suite by Google Cloud. Thanks to two years of research and development and multiple improvements in design, performance, and comfort, Bombas are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. With an arch support system that provides extra support where you need it most and a cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without added bulkiness, Bombas feel like a hug around your foot. Not to mention Bombas' stay-up technology ensures that your socks stay in place without leaving a mark. And the super soft cotton material makes you never want to take them off. So whether you're a runner, power walker, or power lounger, there's a pair of Bombas that'll add comfort to your life. One thing I love about Bombas is they've got a tool for every possible job. So you've got a variety of of styles and, and colors and patterns. They've got stripes. They've got snowflake patterns. They've got ankle height. They've got no show. They've got calf height. You're not using the same socks that you would want to take a jog in when you're going skiing or shoveling snow. And you're not wearing your snow shoveling socks when you're going running. Bombas has a sock for whatever style and whatever activity you want to use your feet for. So if that sounds good to you, you too can own one or many pairs of Bombas socks by going to bombas.com slash MLB and using the code MLB for 20% off your first order. That's dot com slash MLB code MLB and you'll get 20% off your first order. All right, and we're back and for, it weirdly seems like we're focusing a lot on the Dodgers. To a certain extent, it feels, this feels like a World Series the Dodgers lost, but they're more interesting right now because the the Red Sox built this great team and they won the World Series on the first try and now just job done. And so there's only, you know, so much you can discuss about that, but the Dodgers are pretty much where they are and they are where they've, they've been for a couple of years and they're starting to have questions going forward. And that all starts with Kershaw opting out. Um, they got to replace Yasmani Grandal. Hyunjin Ryu is going to be a free agent, so they've they've got questions. And I wrote a little bit about this in my column off Game Five. But you know, where does this leave the Dodgers?
1: As you wrote in your column, Michael, there are still a couple reasons to be optimistic about the Dodgers. From my perspective, the fact that their ownership seems willing to spend a lot of money still helps out. I know they took a step back below the luxury tax this year, but that seemed like more of a a one-time resetting of the penalties as opposed to a formula for the future going forward. And then number two is just that they don't play in the best division. I mean, the Red Sox and Yankees will be battling each other for years. The Cubs have the Brewers to contend with, but the Dodgers have the Diamondbacks who might be tearing down entirely. They have a couple other teams who just don't have the ceiling that the Dodgers do. Maybe the Padres in a couple years with their farm system, but not, you know, none of those teams seem like they're willing to compete right away. And that puts LA in still a very favorable position, at least in the the near future. Yeah. I
2: wrote an article for Grantland. It it must've been four years ago at this point, I think about how I just couldn't envision the Dodgers not being good again. And it, comes for every team eventually, other than the Yankees, I guess, who literally haven't had a losing season in more than two decades. But it's just hard to see how with this front office, with some of the young core that they have and with the money that they can spend, with Corey Seager coming back next year, and right, with no one quite ready, I don't think, to take over in that division – I just, I don't see an obvious route that the Dodgers do not win their seventh consecutive division title next year. And we start having the Kershaw conversation again, most likely.
0: The biggest thing is that they don't play in the AL East or the AL West or even the NL East, where there's going to be serious competition for, uh, or serious up and coming teams, even like the Padres are going to be good at some point in the not too distant future, but I kind of need them to, to show me something first and. It's just, it's hard not to be good when you're spending 200 and change million dollars on payroll, unless it's all locked up in, uh, players who are, you know, 34 and older, which is what the giants did, you know, apart from that specific situation, if you, if you spend to the tax, you're probably going to be competitive and that's leaving alone, you know, not just Seeger and Bellinger and Walker Bueller, but if Will Smith comes up next year, you know, Mitchell White, uh, contributes, you know, we're looking at, uh, a club with immense financial wealth with you know they're just coming off back-to-back pennants they might be the best if even if nothing changes they might be the best team in the national league next year and they've got numerous ways to supplement supplement themselves so the only thing that that like goes against them and this is completely irrational it's it's just so unusual for a team to win seven straight division titles it's so unusual for a team to win the pennant three years in a row it, you know it hasn't happened in the national league since world war 2 and it just you know I, I don't know if that's a good enough reason to to say like this is the you know this is their shot and they blew it i you know, i don't know if they're going to get a better shot than they they had last year against the astros but i don't know sometimes you think the the window's closed you know how the how many great Cardinals teams were there under Tony La Russa? and two of the worst teams that that they put out. You know the the uh, the O six team, and then the twenty eleven team that just snuck into the playoffs on the last day of the season. Those were the two teams that won titles, and not the team that won one hundred and five games in two thousand four. So it's I don't know. It's it's hard to predict, other than just broadly saying that the Dodgers will be good. You know, yeah. it'll be very interesting to it. I would almost if I were the Dodgers, hope that Kershaw, you have to hope that Kershaw doesn't opt out. Cause then you just don't, you know, maybe he's not a $35 million a year pitcher anymore, but I just don't want to make that decision. And maybe this is why I'm not a, a major league GM. Just the idea of having to make that decision on that player gives me the hives. But that would just be an immensely tough call. Yeah. So would so, you know, what do you do with Grandall? it's bad a, a postseason as he had. He's for my money, a top three catcher in baseball. And it's not like they've got a whole lot of other options on the free agent market. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. I think there are many paths forward for them, but which one they choose will be very interesting to watch.
2: Yeah. I think it's sort of like you're unlikely to live to be 93 years old, but once you get to 93, you're more than likely to to live to ninety four. I think it's sort of the same with the Dodgers. You're you're is that not true? likely to. I, I think so. There's probably a point where that stops being true. <laughs> we're, gonna,
0: we're gonna get angry emails from doctors and, and public health, uh, you know, uh, researchers and stuff Yeah. Like anyway,
2: I, the analogy is that if you you know you're unlikely to win six consecutive division titles, but if you do, you're probably doing something right and haven't had too stiff competition, so you're probably likely to win that seventh. And I think the Dodgers. Are and I think you're right. I'm sure they'd be happy to just have Kershaw for a couple more years and see what happens in those years. They could be very telling and not have to extend him and guarantee more money. But they've just they've done a decent job, and you can kind of compare and contrast with the Red Sox since Dave Dombrowski has taken over, where he's been very aggressive about trading prospects, and obviously they still have the Betts, Bogarts, Benintendi core but they have been a little more willing to shed young talent than the Dodgers have and so the Dodgers still do have, you know, Alex Verdugo who's barely been broken in and Urias is back and Seeger's coming back and Bellinger's there and when you have that kind of core and that kind of payroll that gives you a lot of room to maneuver.
0: All right, well, we are Bullish on the Dodgers. It's <laughs> it's hard to feel optimistic. I understand how hard it must be to feel optimistic about them right now, but I fully expect to see, uh, as you all said, Kershaw bl- you know, blowing games in next year's postseason too. So all right, before we wrap up, uh, I wanted to resurrect one of the, the fine traditions of the Ringer MLB show, one we haven't done in months, uh, is a draft. We're going to do just a quick three-round draft of our favorite moments of the entire postseason from – uh, from the wild card games to all the way through the World Series, so we'll just go Zach first, I guess. Do do we care enough about fairness to do this snake? Let's just alternate. Go one, three, one, two, three. Zach, then Ben, then me. All
1: right. So I think uh, if I have the first pick, it's kind of obvious. We spent a lot of time talking about it, but if I can combine everything from the 18 in a game together. I'll take that one, and I think that's fair because there, <laughs> there were so many individual moments from the 18-inning game that if we separated them, they'd take up, like I don't know, maybe half of this draft.
0: I was going to say, I was sort of counting on on separating those and breaking well, it. We can,
1: we can do that, <laughs> in which case, I would take specifically the 13th inning when Boston took the lead on the infield single error, and then the Dodgers responded by tying the game with an infield single error. That sort of epitomize the weirdness of that game and this sport we love in general. Uh, and poor Kinsler, I'm glad for his sake the,
2: the Red Sox didn't lose the world series after the game he had. I think I will take the Puig three run shot in game four, even though it ultimately didn't turn out to be as momentous as it seemed at the time. It did seem that way at the time. And Just as a visual, I mean, I think it's the closest equivalent we have probably to like the Batista bat flip this postseason where you could just watch that replay from multiple angles many times just over and over again because it's not just Puig and how demonstrative he is, but it's also Rodriguez and the glove just, you know, pegging it to the ground with just complete frustration that I think is just kind of the definitive sight of the postseason to me, even though it didn't turn out to be the biggest hit.
0: No, the biggest hit of the postseason is my first pick. That's Brandon Woodruff's home run <laughs> off Clayton Kershaw <laughs> yes. in Game One of the NLCS. I had more fun with the Brewers this postseason than any other team. They were just so so unorthodox, so interesting to talk about. There's so much novelty, which I think is underrated. When we have the Astros and the Dodgers and the Red Sox in the latter stage of the The postseason again and again and again um but that above all the other weird things that they did is the moment that made me go whoa and so i mean that's this is another replay that reveals new new mysteries with every uh every time you watch it so i mean i that 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 was probably my my highlight of the postseason
1: My second pick is another moment involving Brandon Woodruff, which is the Curly Ogden gambit. Maybe we have to rename (laughs) it at this point. (laughs) I'm I'm
0: surprised that lasted all the way to four. I thought about taking that off the
1: board. But I I think it was Jeff Sullivan from Fangraphs who said, after last year's World Series, there are some moments that, that are for the casual fan and there are some moments that are for us baseball nerds who spend eight months of the year following games every single day and This, I think, was one of the latter, even though the casual fan probably found it fascinating. As Michael said on the podcast after this happened, it was a bunch of people on Twitter saying, like, what's going on? And then we were like, remember the 1924 World Series. So anytime you can remember the 1924 World Series, which had multiple occasions just in this playoffs alone, I think that's reason for excitement. And I will, you know, I... We'll be curious to see if there are new and innovative strategies that people try going forward, but then again, this strategy isn't all that new. It last happened almost a hundred years ago something
0: something that the three of us should do if we're just if we're just gonna keep talking incessantly about the nineteen twenty four World series, the three of us should get together and like explain what happened you know from <laughs> from game one to game seven just so everybody isn't lost. Maybe that's something that that uh, we can do after the winter meetings when we're, we're bored to tears of just waiting for everybody to sign.
2: But so I'm going to take the Cody Bellinger catch in NLCS game four in the 10th inning. It was a very, I think it was my favorite catch favorite defensive play possibly of the postseason. He did almost a, a soccer-style belly slide after he did it. I don't know whether that was completely necessary, but it looked great. And for just added bonus points, he then got the walk-off hit in that game a few innings later. I don't know if I can combine them, but he, he kind of contributed on both sides of the ball in those extra innings. And that, uh, I think, lives on as my favorite defensive highlight.
0: All right, give me the ninth inning of Game Four of the Yankees Red Sox ALDS. Mm. Um, More than anything else that happened this postseason, that was just so edge of your seat. Like it, it just seemed so chaotic, and you know, to to watch Craig Kimbrell just lose it in real time, and the I the I think the fastest my heart ever got going was was uh, after that Gary Sanchez fly ball was hit before the camera angle flipped. Uh, I think yeah. was the emotional, well, not the the most emotional moment, but like the most exciting fraction of a second of this postseason.
1: I you took my pick, so I will pick a, a related moment, which is the ninth inning of ALCS Game Four, which was the Andrew Benintendi oh, catch. That was uh, mine. <laughs> <laughs> I think for many of the same reasons as the ALDS Game Four ninth inning, this one also had the added bonus of. Kimbrel actually coming in in the eighth, and you had Mookie Betts' phenomenal defensive play to catch Tony Kemp at second base. Uh, the Bregman hit and then Ben Benintendi dive is sort of similar to that Gary Sanchez play, where if Ben Benintendi misses that ball, it probably rolls to the wall for a three-run double. The Astros win the game, tie the series at two, and I think we would have all considered the Astros favorites in the ALCS at that point. So this really flipped the narrative there, and helped Boston continue
2: to steamroll its competition. All right. And since you took a couple of the ones I had high on my list, I'm going to go with a blast from the past. It's been a while since we've seen this one, but the Tony Walters single in the NL wildcard game in the 13th inning off Kyle Hendricks that was uh an exciting game that seems like a long time ago and the fact that it was Tony Walters of all people getting a big hit was just very October baseball
0: okay I'm I'm torn for for my Mr. Irrelevant pick as much as I'll just say I've my pick had gone off the board earlier I would have gone with Alex Bregman turning into a troll god uh <laughs> during the the ALDS um I think we we witnessed a real star making moment there and that was pretty exciting to watch, but the most emotional moment we've talked about already on this pod. I am a person who loves sadness. My favorite band is the national. My favorite novelist is Richard Ford. And so I'm picking Nathan Eovaldi coming off the mound through the dugout as his teammates try to console him after uh, giving up Max Muncie's home run to end game four of the world series. It was just such a, a heartbreaking moment. And I think that, you know, baseball is a, a game that's defined by failure. And to see how much one player and one team invested in it, you know, Rick Porcello was talking about how he was, cry- or did I say game four, game three. Um, Rick Porcello was talking about how uh, how he was crying because of, you know, how much he saw Evaldi giving out. You know, that's, that's leaving it all out on the field. And, you know, as somebody who's, Held Nathan Ivaldi stock since uh, since his early days with the Dodgers. It was uh, I don't know. It was not fun to watch, but moving. I think is is the way to put it. That was the most moving moment of the playoffs for me. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think
1: Alex Cora said after the game or the next day that in his speech after the game when he brought the locker room together and talked about Game Three that. The rest of the players gave Evaldi a standing ovation for e ovation Wow, yeah, I love like that <laughs> <laughs> a standing ovation for the work he put in and uh the the image of him just going back and throwing ninety nine miles an hour, hundred miles an hour ninety nine miles an hour inning after inning uh was pretty remarkable.
2: I hope his arm is okay. <laughs> I hope he
1: makes
0: a billion dollars in free agency mm-hmm. I mean. I hope his arm is okay. I hope he gets paid because he's been yeah, you know, he's been through so much. Like he is the sort of like the power righty rich hill of this uh <laughs> this postseason. And I hope he makes a million or, or a billion dollars in in his next contract. Um, but we'll talk about free agency uh and the Mets GM situation and whatever comes up. We're not gonna be back again this week, obviously, because the uh the World Series is over and there's no more playoff baseball to talk about. Um We'll be back probably sometime early next week. We're still figuring out our postseason schedule, um, so and our format. So when we'll be back and what that pod will look like is still uh, not entirely decided. So we'll be back, but we will have a new episode next week. We'll talk about off season stuff. But until then, it's been it's been a blast. I'm happy you guys have been able to join me.
1: Yeah. So my congrats, boss.
0: That will just about do it for this week and indeed this season of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks to Zach Cram and Ben Lindberg for joining me today. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Congratulations to Steve Pierce, Jackie Bradley, and the rest of the South Carolina Gamecocks for winning the World Series. Thank you for listening. Thanks for sticking with us throughout this entire season and postseason. I tell you to enjoy the week's action, but there is no week's action. So we'll be back next week, as I said, to start unraveling free agency and that sort of thing. So thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Chinook Seedery is committed to quality, not mass-producing seeds as cheaply as possible. Their small batch roasting process leads to a noticeably better seeding experience and their seeds come in delicious, one-of-a-kind flavors. There's nothing more American than baseball and spitting seeds. Whether you're headed to the ballpark or watching the playoffs from home, don't do baseball without a bag of Chinook Seeds nearby. Head to ChinookSeedery.com and use the code MLB to get 20% off a bag of the best seeds ever.